Hello again and welcome back to Molecule to Market. It's great to have you with us for another episode where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Frederick Lehman, who is a venture partner at Industry Fonden. Industry Fonden is how to say it. Um, not the easiest word because it is Swedish and I am British and terrible with vocabulary. So who is my guest today? Well, Frederick focuses on life sciences with an extra eye for innovative biotechs. He's interested in contributing to businesses with his experience from biotech world to help companies reach their highest potential. He has more than 20 years of experience from the life science industry as CEO, head of research and CMC in several companies. He has extensive experience from turning ideas into products and successful businesses and having founded six companies, including On Target Kevin Street, which was acquired by Resi Farm in 2015. You'll hear more about that today. He also serves as a board director at several life science companies and is a member of the scientific advisory board at Akathelia Pharmaceuticals. Um, Frederick also holds a PhD in medicinal chemistry from Gothenburg University and an MBA from Stockholm School of Economics. Super, super smart guy who I've had the pleasure of knowing for several years. Uh, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to today's podcast and give us a kind rating and enjoy today's show. Frederick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roman. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. And uh, you and I have known each other for many, many years. So it's a genuine pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast to tell your story to our listener. And I know it's a great story. So I'm, I'm so happy that we're, we're here for you to share it. So let's give our listener a bit of background, Frederick. Tell us your journey in the industry and how you got in the industry to, to where you are today. Well, if you're going to go all the way to the to way back, uh, I actually intended when I was young to become an architect uh, until I was 13 years old and I had my first chemistry class. I still remember it. And I remember leaving that classroom after one hour and said to myself, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So it was a unreal epiphany moment. And since then, I basically struggled as much as I can to become a, a chemist, if you wish. But you've had some pretty pretty good roles as a chemist. So do you mind just talking through some of the the kind of the roles that you've had at, uh, along the journey, and then ultimately to to setting up your own business? Yeah. So you do what you do, right? So you go to university and study chemistry, and then uh, I did it in Uppsala. Eventually, ended up in Gothenburg to do my PhD in medicinal chemistry, and then uh, went back to Biovitrum, was the company called, uh, which was the previous Pharmacia. So after Pharmacia got acquired by Pfizer, Pfizer switched a lot of the uh, uh, production and um, operations to Kalamazoo. And um, the leftovers, the remains in Sweden, eventually got spun out as a research unit called Biovitrum, where I ended up uh, working as a medicinal chemist for a few years. Until the, um, the company decided at Biovitrum in 2008, I think that they should basically close their small molecule research program in Sweden and focus on biologics, which meant that the entire small molecule uh, team, of course, um, were to be shut down. We were, I don't know, 100 people at the time, I, I assume. So then we started a kind of an internal process to make good use of whatever we had in the company uh, because we were closing down. I mean, this was 2008, so we, with all the crashes and everything happening. So we packaged a lot of um, 
projects that we've been been working on all the way from the pharmacia time and sold some of them assets to other companies so the so the assets could be developed even though they were not uh, with us anymore we um, spun out some of the uh, compound connection and a lot of the infrastructure to Karolinska Institute and Sinai Lab and chemistry biology teams at Karolinska and then the um, we sold a lot of equipment to various companies um, and um, yeah, eventually what, what was left after everything this, we, we could actually as staff, we were allowed to, to purchase some of the equipment, which me and a friend did. And then we started up our own chemistry uh, preclinical CRO company in 2009, eventually. And then even after we were gone, then we kind of took whatever was left, which was still truckloads of truckloads of you know glassware and, and and equipment and we donated it to the universities around around Sweden so it took I think it took us six months just to you know shut down everything in some sort of orderly sense wow but I suppose uh, Phoenix from the flames of all the work that you guys were doing to uh, find homes for equipment and assets and technology and ultimately if I understand the story correctly, led to the creation of On Target Chemistry, one of the, the business that you were the CEO. And were you the founder of that business amongst others, or was it just it was your was it your it was your baby, right? Yeah, it was me and a friend that we were both working at Biovitrum. Uh, Ulf Bremberg was was the guy, other guy's name, and we founded this CRO together with the professor Ingvar Brandt and then business uh, person called Marek Boschepinski. So we were four founders, but but the main owners were were me and Ulf. We set out this this journey. At that point, Frederick, did you class yourself as a businessman and an entrepreneur, or were you very much, if you looked in the mirror at that point in time, did you see a scientist, if you like, a chemist? What was where were you at at that phase of your career? Yeah, I would say I would I would say I I would call myself an involuntarily entrepreneur. I would assume is that is that an English word? <laughs> yeah, it is. I could also be classified as entrepreneur on public demand, because when the um, when uh, Bayvitter were shutting down, actually people started calling me and saying, "Frederick, we heard you got unemployed now with Bayvitter shutting down. It's it's a shame, but do you mind starting a company because we want to buy services from you?" So um, that's actually got <laughs> got me was was got me started this. And you had to effectively your involuntary entrepreneur journey came from people that I suppose the demand out there for people that wanted your assistance on projects. Yes, yes. So bef- before that, I had no uh, <laughs> thought or intention in my life to to becoming an entrepreneur. I thought I was going to be staying in the lab at Bayvitum until I retired. <laughs> that didn't happen. But they let you out, and you <laughs> they, they let me out in <laughs> in society again. I don't know if it was a good or bad decision, but here we are. So talk us through. So that founding story and then I suppose the seven and a half years or so that you, you know, ran that business. What was, give our listener a bit of an overview of what types of things you did at, at Untarget Chemistry. Um, you know, what scale did you get to before the eventual sale of the business? Yeah, so as, as we said, we started with just me and Ulf. Um, we are medicine chemists or organic chemists by by training. So we were, of course, starting out doing uh, custom custom synthesis and uh, medicam projects for for various clients. Starting off in in Sweden, 
we then quite rapidly also ventured into analytics because we saw there was a, a big need of analytical services as well. And um, just by word of mouth, because I don't think your company was around at, at that time, or at least it was in the, in the early days, uh, we kind of spread our business by just uh, word of mouth. Um, so we didn't do any any sales or marketing for two or three years. It just kind of spread by itself. Um, so already when we started the first, when we closed the first year, I think we were six or seven people in, in the company. And then we, uh, we growed organically without any venture capital or external funding until 2015, I think, um, when we uh, were acquired by Reciform. And at that point in time, at that point in time, we were 50 people, I think, around 50 people. We had opened a business unit in Israel. So we had a, a handful or, or a little bit more of chemists actually working on site in Nesiona, right next to Weisman. And we had customers from Japan to US and all over Europe. So um, yeah, so it was it was it was a journey, as you as you know how it is. Well, yeah, exactly. Did you take the business to market? As in, you know, when you got to fifty people and presumably pretty healthy revenues, and as you mentioned, you know, customers from across the world, did you actively make the decision with your, with all four, any of the other founders of the business to sell the business? Was that the strategy or was it a case that Rusty Farm just knocked on the door? Yeah, so I think it's, I don't really know what was the chicken or the egg. Ulf actually um, resigned from the company after a few years. So so then um, uh, I uh, actually uh, got to acquire his shares or actually he he basically gave me his shares because he, he thought that the company and the staff, they should continue and he wanted the company to succeed, even though it was not his journey anymore. He wanted to do something else. Uh, and he knew that I couldn't, as a private person, I, I couldn't buy him out because it was just too much money for me. But then what happened in the end when I actually, when I sold the company to, to Reciform in 2015, I actually, in the morning of the transaction, I actually gave him back most of his shares. Because uh, I think he should have, uh, if I had the money at the time, I should have bought the shares from me. I shouldn't have received them. So I thought it was the right thing to do to wow, be giving back quite a lot of them before before the transaction. So he, I, I, mean, I was prior to you saying that I, I, I was going to say I'm sure that's a decision that he regretted to give his shares back. But if I've understood the story correctly, you took the very moral decision to you know on the you know, prior to the transaction reissue those shares back to Ulf so actually at the time of transaction he would have presumably made significant returns on on those shares well at, at least a little bit of return yes yeah oh, that's good for you good for you and it, well i mean i think you almost are very humble about the fact that you built a business up over seven and a half years and, and sold it to a global business like resi farm which is a, an incredible a, achievement um and what was the what was the kind of deal in terms of, and I think it was around this time actually that you and I met, I remember meeting you in Stockholm. And so was was the plan for you to stay within Resi Farm for a certain period of time? I appreciate you stayed there for a, almost a couple of years, but was, was there a, an agreement that you had to stay there for a while as you integrated the two businesses? Um, I imagine that's always a difficult thing for a, a, you know, an involuntary entrepreneur like yourself. <laughs> Yeah, it was the, it was a standard terms 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 of business, so it is what it is. It was what it was. 
Um, but the, um, I think, it's, as you said, I, I, I don't think it was a conscious, conscious decision to try and sell the company, uh, but it wasn't unconscious either. It was, you know, you grow it to a certain level and um, without any entrepreneurial aspirations or education or, or anything, you can only take your business so far. So at that point in time, after after seven years, I kind of reached, can you say, more of a plateau in the in the in the business, and um, I kind of wanted to take the next step, um, see what what that would could do to a company. Um, so that's when I uh, when I met Thomas Eldred, um, and we started discussing discussing this transaction, and it happened I think nine months later or so. So it was quite a rapid process. Because I, I really would like to see what is it like to to run, you know, as, uh, as, as rather than being on your own to be part of something bigger. Because as you know, Reciform had a rather decentralized system with 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 the, all the different um, sites um, as independent uh, units. So I was kind of I was curious to see what what could what extra could it bring to be part of a of a big organization rather than just being all, all on your own. And how was the experience? And, and I'm asking purely because I've often had that same feeling, which is, you know, what happens if we one day sold our business, say, to a bigger agency group and I ran a part of that agency or whatever that looks like? And how did you find the reality versus what your kind of expectations were when you went into it? Well, I don't, I don't know actually, but uh, it was definitely another type of experience, um, and especially I think uh, for 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 the Reciform group, we were a little bit of the odd bird out because we were basically the only uh, the business units that were doing this preclinical early research. As you know, Reciform is more known for its uh, big uh, production facilities, but uh, it gave me a lot, a lot of insights and, and uh, knowledge about what it means to to be part and run you know bigger organizations and conglomerates is that, is that the right word yeah absolutely uh, so it was it was in the end a really good experience and i stay there as you said i stay there way longer than i than i contractually had to because i really enjoyed working with those those people which is great because that's not always the case uh, you know i believe i interviewed Someone last week who uh, sold to, well, actually two people that sold to big, large CDMOs and left very, very quickly, not not two years. And so credit to, to Resi Farm and the group there for retaining your skills and expertise. But then that takes us to, I suppose, the, the fall of 2018. And, you know, was there, was there ever a, 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 was there ever the opportunity or the chance at that point in time that you were going to, you know, do something different or do nothing because <laughs> it's interesting as you look at your experience in 2018 you are a very busy person you constantly do lots of things was there a point at which you thought well actually i'm just going to take a break and actually i'm not going to work as hard anymore did that even knowing you like i know you i suspect the answer is no but for our listener i think just useful <laughs> to give them some insight into what was going through your mind after you know entrepreneur exeter's business what next I, I wish my brain was wired in that way, but unfortunately, <laughs> it's not. So, as you know, Ramahan, as well as anyone, is just it's all about the race. It's never about the goal. So, uh, so the next thing I, I wanted to, to do um, was to, to see 
because you start when you start as a chemist, when you start working for pharmacia and then those things, you kind of you do this because of some sort of higher goal that you want to contribute contribute to society. And then, in my case, it was in the drug development space. And as a as a CMO or a, as a, as a CRO business, I have helped a lot of companies, you know, developing and, and inventing compounds that went into clinical trials. Um, and one company that I had worked for uh, as a consultant through my company for, for many years was a company called Oncopeptides. And um, then the opportunity came along that they wanted to make it a little bit more formal. So they offered me actually a, a more formal position as the head of research and, and also taking part of taking care of their CMC. So that's when I left Resiform to then um, build up the, the research facility at Oncopeptides. Because up to that point, they had been a very, very uh, virtual company, which many biotech companies are. But they had approached a state when they become a little bit more real. The, the clinical trials were going good and they were uh, very successful in their fundraising, thanks to the, the CEO, Jacob Lindberg. And um, basically, they, were, they, were, they needed to expand quite a lot in their operations. So that's, that's when I more formally joined them as an employee um, in 2018. Uh, I can't remember the, the years anymore, sorry. Um, yeah, and it looks like you're, um, when I looked at the, the research, you, you, you'd obviously had an involvement of that business for a long time, back in 2008, oh, yeah, yeah. I think it is. So you've been, and are, you, are you a shareholder in that business or a, a, a kind of, a, or was it more of a, or an investor in that business or is it just more of a, a consultant along that journey? <laughs> So it, it goes, everything goes way back. So when I did my PhD in the early 2000s, the the, my professor, Christina Lutman, was actually the founder of Oncopeptides, one of the seven founders. So I was exposed to the, to the project already in 2001 or two, even though I didn't work on it uh, personally. There was other people in our group that worked on that project. And then in 2008, I started, as I said, working there as a consultant as well through my on-target chemistry business helping out with their CMC and, and early research. So I've been around the project for 10 years already, had a big kind of good grasp of what's, what was going on. But when, when they really needed to expand, and, and, and I think they went from 10 people to 30 to 100 to 300 over, you know, over three years. And as you know as well, growing your company more than like 30 to 40% per year is painful. And Oncopeptides did 300% three years in a row. So 10, 30, 100, 300, and even more. I think we ended up at 350 when we, when we peaked. So it was really um, a time um, where you could take a lot of your knowledge and experience from you know, growing your businesses and, and do, the, do things you can actually use it, uh, in, the, in the leadership team. Uh, and we also, as I said, we were virtual at that point in time, but realized that in order to really uh, harvest and capture on, on all the good things that, that we had in the business, in the company, we needed at one point to start having our own facilities and our own lab. So then we, uh, in 2020, I think it actually was during the COVID, uh, we took the decision early 2020 to set up our own facility. So then we... Uh, built, took over, built, uh, and recruited, I think we recruited 30 people uh, in two or three weeks, basically, during this COVID summer to set up a research facility for, for oncopeptides. So that was also 
you know, putting your <laughs> putting your experience and your knowledge to work again because building preclinical labs was something I had done before. That was kind of a natural and very fun part of the part of the journey. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. You know, what's quite fascinating is that as I look back at your journey, I always had you, obviously, the, the, the manner in which we met, you had run a CRO and ended up in a, a CMO business. So I always had you kind of categorized in my mind as you know, on the service vendor side. But actually, what's really insightful looking at the various roles and consulting roles and board roles that you've done over the years is you've almost managed to be on the same side as the table as the drug developers during that journey as if you were, you know, I mean, it's obviously in the in the case of, you know, Oncopeptide, you are very much on that journey with them. But I think you've managed to almost break that vendor-client kind of relationship piece and actually be seen as, hey, I'm on this journey with you. Is that a fair observation? I think that's what every every service provider aspires to do, isn't it? Well, this, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. They aspire and say they do it. But my observation with you is you seem to have kind of blended your way, like both sides pretty, I'm not going to say effortlessly, but you've done it seamlessly and really, really well. I hope so. Yeah. You're trying to, you know, you know how it is, Roman. You're just yes. trying to do, you're just trying to do a good job. Absolutely. If you fo- focus on the science and everything else, usually solve itself along the way. So let's let's fast forward then and talk to us about your role that which you joined about a year ago uh, as a venture partner at Industry Fonden in Stockholm, Sweden, and tell us tell our listener a little bit more about the organisation and what types of things that you do as part of that organisation. So Industry Fonden is a is a is a is a unique player in the ecosystem because we are. Uh, a foundation so many people mistakes us as a governmental body but but we are not we are a foundation um, and if you're a foundation you have a set of kind of founding rules for for a foundation that you have to follow and oblige and in our case is that we should uh, support the um, the development of the ecosystem in in Sweden in in various tech areas um, and we call them life science transformative tech and deep tech so life science is, is where I'm heading up as uh, uh, the, the department now. Deep tech is more of you know synthetic biology, quantum computers uh, for for the for the clever people, uh, and then the uh, transformative tech is is basically everything else that is inventive. And uh, of course, we are working a lot with the green transition and, and supporting companies that can help in in that journey for for humanity. So uh, we cater some 500 and something million dollars, give or take, depending on the exchange rates. And we invest um, in uh, Sweden and the Nordic region for breakthrough sciences that could you know, potentially change the world as, as we know it. Um, and it also came kind of as a, as a natural, I would say natural next step when I had done the, the oncopeptide journey. Um, because then um, you interact, and I had interacted a lot over my years with various board of directors, and I had met and uh, interacted a lot with various investors. 
And I thought this is an interesting side of the of the business that I don't know enough of. So um, I know from reading your bo- your book that you're not so impressed with the MBA educations, but I actually took one of those here, here in Sweden at Stockholm School of Economics, and then I kind of ventured my way into the VC world. So our job there is is just to evaluate uh, companies, uh, because as you know, every biotech uh, needs uh, VC funding because they are not cash flow positive uh, ever. And then we, uh, we, together with my team and, and, and others, we decide which companies to invest in. And then we also work as active investors. So we are sitting in the board of directors and we try to be as active in the development as we can. And, uh, you know, we are not limited to the boardroom. If, if we feel that we can help out in, in various ways with our uh, experiences, uh, we are happy. We are happy. We, we, we try to do that as much as possible. In the end, the company's success is, is our success. That's how we, we, we're going to make our money. What an interesting role. So effectively a bit like VC, but slightly yeah. less cap- capitalist in the true sense. No, 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 it- no, 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 don't say that because we try to be as capitalists as, as we possibly can. I think the difference is that the normal way of a VC fund, how it works, is that they go... To uh, limited partners, as they are called, or you know, pension funds or, or the big, big monies, and they are funding fund investors. So they go out and raise one billion dollars. Uh, say understood. And then they have eight years to invest them and two years to divest them, and then they should give the money back to the investors, right? But since we don't have any owners because we are a foundation, we are an evergreen fund. So we are not our biggest, I would say, USP as an investor is that we are not trapped in an 8 plus 2 cycle that we have to invest in a certain pace and we don't have to sell in a certain pace. So some of our some of our most successful exits that we have done historically in the fund has been after like 15, 20 years of ownership. Wow, okay. Which is of course not, <laughs> I must say that it's not what we want. We wanted to do the 7 to 8 years because you, you, you want the money to churn, right? And, and to invest in, in new new things, but we can. We don't have the. Uh, we have a little bit more flexibility uh, than the typical VC funds. But make no mistakes. We try to be just as capitalistic as everyone else. Understood. That, that we want to make money. And and my understanding, Frederick, is you know from a breadth perspective, you cut co- you cover all modalities, all disease areas. It's not you're not specific at any particular within any particular no. area. No, we can do, as you say, large molecules, small molecules, cell and gene therapy, all the difference. Typically, we try to invest between one and five million dollars as our first ticket. And we would like to own between, you know, 10 and 30 uh, percent in typically, which means that we are often, if you take those kind of metrics, how much you want to invest and what kind of ownership you want, you kind of can calculate backwards that you're going to end up in the late preclinical, early clinical stage. So we have done some investments that are super, super early, and we have done some first investments in, in you know, in phase two. But typically we, we try to, we, we, we typically end up in the value of death, uh, where, where you're going to go from some late preclinical stage and, and take it into the, into the clinic. And how is it being on that side of the table? If I look at someone like you, you are relentless in your own growth in terms of obviously early on in your career setting up your business selling that company and then the various drug development consultancy roles and you know, board roles and everything that you've done since 
it strikes me as when you're on that side of the table, it's a slightly slower pace and slightly more methodical and less less relentless. Um, notwithstanding what you said before, which is, you know, you're not confined to the boardroom. If you want to get involved and get your hands dirty, it sounds like you are able to do that. But how have you found the, part of me thinks it sounds like a really fun role. You get to see all these, you get to meet lots of interesting founders and see amazing technology and decide which ones you want to invest in. Um, but part of me thinks is, you sometimes thinking it would be great to be a bit more involved in these companies. Yeah, both, uh, yes, yes, on all accounts. And it's actually, if you don't mind me laying out uh, the story a little bit from another perspective here, I think this, this uh, entire thing started out 23 years ago when the European Union uh, launched their Horizon 2020 initiatives. Um, because as you know, back then they started pouring a lot, a lot of money into, let's call it later stage applied research. So not, you know, the, the ground research, but there has to be some kind of um, practical implications of the research. And they did this for, for they've done this for 23 years now with different names. It was the EIC funds, and you have the Horizon 2020 funds, you have the Eurostore funds, you have the Enable funds, you have all sorts of different funding. But at the end of the day, they have been pouring gazillions of money into the system for a very, very long time. So what has happened then is that, of course, a lot, a lot of companies has become has become created as a, as a consequence, as a knock-on effect of all this money that has been pouring into the system. Unfortunately, the VC side, even though there has never been more VC funding in the system as it is right now, of course, we, the VC uh, ecosystem can't compete with the European Union. So what has happened is that even though there has never been more VC funds available, there's never been harder to get funding because there are so many more good projects. So I would say the most frustrating part of my job right now is to meet so many great, great companies that I can't invest in because we don't, we don't have enough, we don't have enough money on our side of the table. So I've been working here for a little bit over a year now at Industry Fonden. I think I have met over 300 companies and I have invested in, is it four or five? So far, the problem is that, of course, you kind of want to invest in another 20 or 30 companies because they are really, really good science behind it. But, you know, we can't. And that's really, I would say, is the most frustrating part uh, that I have experienced sitting on this side of the table is that I need, we need more money because there are so many great things out there that, that should get funding. So let's, let's zoom in on that particular element around seeing 300 so companies and then only having the i suppose funds to be able to invest in four or five like you've done what what is it what's what from your perspective is the difference between the ones that you do invest in and the ones that don't quite meet the mark it is is it as simple as the quality of the science and the tech or my assumption would be it's probably something around the founder, the potential market, the potential commercialization of whatever the technology. I'm sure it's a myriad of different factors, but it'd be interesting to get your perspective on which ones have made, you know, which ones have made it through. And if we have people, I'm sure, sure it's not, there's not, a, it's not as binary as I'm asking, but it'd be great to get your take on that. No, we, we have done a lot of soul searching around this topic ourselves and also with our, with our fellow investors. Um, uh, so we, uh, the, the answer is that we don't really know, unfortunately. 
but uh, I would say that it's very rarely it's the science that that is the limiting step. Because there are so many, as I said, there is so much great science out there that should be commercialized one way or another. So usually the science is solid and we don't need to you know, worry too much about it. So it's, as you say, it's all the other things. Do they have, do they have the right team? Do they have the right uh, plan to the market? Are they realistic uh, in their valuation um, expectations? And you know, all the, so it's basically all the other things. We usually say that it has to be like 12 stars has to align to, to, to get an investment. Wow. But funny enough is that all of us as an investor, we, we would like to syndicate because we rather take a little less risk in more companies than a little more risk in a few companies. So instead of putting all our eggs in one basket, we like to syndicate with other investors. Um, but uh, what funny, what's funny is that when you talk to the other investors in the ecosystem, usually we end up liking the same companies even though we have done our due diligence completely independent from each other oh that's interesting so even though and and we of course we meet from time to time and, and talk and discuss and and what's funny is that nobody of us can really put the fingers to why did we all like this project instead of some of the others and then, so i i don't unfortunately roman i don't have the i don't have the answer to this one and one of the things I, I think, you know, just shows your entrepreneurial spirit is, you know, that is the reality of it. And you know, I think I'm sure some guests would have tried and give a much more rational answer. But I think what you've shared is just the pure subjectivity of investing when in uh, that phase, which is there might be lots of rational decisions that line up, but something might just might not feel right. I look at my own experience in, you know, in going through a private equity investment and for me it was a lot of it was uh, even on the the in, getting the investment but it's the same for the investor it was about gut feel and chemistry and culture fit and all these types of things that there isn't a there isn't a measure to to do that so i think it's it's genuinely great to hear you say that um not not great for those who need investment obviously because then it's not a clear criteria no but it's also i mean we try to do we try to be as rational as possible and i mean for every new investment we are we are a team of you know two three four people that spends basically two to three months full time just evaluating doing due diligence so we we try to be as thorough as we can so it's not so we try to we try to do our best, but the, the problem, I think, that where it really comes to the, the the trouble is that we can have five companies that even with all the due diligence that anyone can ever do, you can still have five companies that kind of looks the same from an you know investment perspective, but you can only invest in two of them. And that's, I think, is where the subjectivity comes along, we, because we have the curse or the blessing of abundance, depending on how you see it. There are too many good cases. And I suppose what that leads us nicely on is, is I suppose, the the global uh, biotech VC sphere at the minute. If, you know, obviously you guys are a relatively small part within the global space of funding for biotechs. But so what's, what are you finding? I appreciate your perspective might be quite Nordic centric, but what's the sentiment you are feeling from these biotech companies coming to you looking for investment? Are you getting a sense of desperation? Are you getting a sense of God, like they've, they've tried every avenue and funding is just dried up? What you know? I suppose what 
what we've heard on the podcast in the last few months is uh, definitely a sense that funding is down and it's harder for people to get funding and they're having to conserve their cash a lot longer. But obviously you're on the you're on the front line of this and you're seeing these guys and girls every day come and invest in. So what's what's the sentiment to your feeling from the market? I think I think frustration might be might be a right a, a good word. And um, I mean I share the frustration with them because they come to us and say, what more can you ask? We have ticked all the boxes. We have done, you know, this is the science, this is the team, this is the plan, this is the market. We have everything out there, you know. Why can't we get an investment? They get they get frustrated. And of course the problem is then when you are an when you are an entrepreneur and you have one project and one baby and, and one company, you they kind of companies see this as a discussion between us and them. And they don't they don't see the bigger picture that when they are pitching to us, it's not a discussion between us and them. It's actually a discussion between them and all the other companies that are pitching to us. So, so even as I said, even though that some company can have done everything, they can't possibly do anything else than they have done, and they should get funding. But there might be one or two other companies that are just slightly, slightly more advanced, a little bit better, you know, having a more novel approach to a, to a, to a market or something, and that kind of, in the end, makes the the small the small decision to to invest in in company A instead of B, and of course. They, they are and they should get frustrated with us because they have done everything they can. But the feeling is that it's not a discussion between us and them. It's, it really is a discussion between them and all the other competitors because they're competing for the same funding, right? Yeah, I know. And that's exactly the point I wanted to kind of underline for our listener is, you know, Sydney, Frederick, what, you, what you're saying is that that as good as the tech is, as good as the pitch is, as good as everything is, the market opportunity, you know, there is only a certain pot of money, whether it's your funds or the global funds out there, yeah. and that everyone is in competition with everyone else. And only, you know, only the strongest will survive, and the ones that actually get funding will go through and, you know, be able to take their businesses forward. But it's it's interesting because it's frustrating not only for these companies who are trying to get funding, but it, as you said before, from your perspective, Frederick, it must be very frustrating to look at a business and be like, oh, well, I wish. We could help these guys and maybe you connect them with other people. But yeah, and I do, I think it's genuinely so interesting for our listener to get the, yeah. the kind of insight and perspective from someone like yourself. And and we try, we are, I mean, VC people and investors sometimes maybe get a little bit of bad rap in the world, but uh, we try our best, whether we succeed or not is another question, but we try to be decent humans. So of course we know a lot of, a lot of SVCs in, in the ecosystem and some of the VC funds are more specialized. Some work only with the microbiome. Some works only in CNS. Some works only, you know, where they say, this is our edge. This is ah. what we want to do. <laughs> and of course, we know quite a lot about each other's preferences. So if a company comes to me and I can't invest in it, but I know that they should be a, could be a good fit for another type of investor, of course, we make the introduction and we try to help out in, in you know, <laughs> in, in a reasonable form what, what we can do. Which is great, but again, there's so there's only so much money to go around. Yeah, absolutely, and, and we're we're Wait. almost out of time, Frederick. So yeah, final, sorry, no, it's okay. Final comment. So, so you final comment. Uh, yeah, of course that, you can. <laughs> uh, I, I also usually say that that it's a little bit of biblical time that we are in now as well, because those that have a lot will receive more, and those that have nothing will receive less. 
because it's also a very clear trend and we have looked at the statistics and the data that there is kind of a clear correlation as well between being well-funded and succeeding. So it's also from an investor side, it's better to have companies that are very well-funded than, you know, spoon-feeding a lot of companies. Because yeah. then there's, there's just slighter chance of them succeeding in the end. Sorry for taking up all this time for Roman. No, no, no. This is great stuff. And final question. I highlighted something you said right at the start uh, of the interview, Frederick. You, you, when, when you were on your business journey, you didn't take any VC funding. You didn't take any investment. You did it the old-fashioned way, which, which I, you know, you and I have talked about in the past in that kind of sweat equity piece in building something. Now, I appreciate the nature of your business as a service provider is different from the nature of the people who are, you know, the types of organizations and biotech companies that are coming to you looking for investment. But are there occasions where you are sat there on that side of the table looking at these potential, are these companies looking for funding where you're sitting there thinking, you know what, you don't need any money, you can go and do it yourself. Is it that black and white or is the reality of just being a biotech as you just need more money to get the thing off the ground and get that traction? If you're a biotech, you need visa funding. There's no way you can do it all by yourself. Uh, you can do it up to a certain stage on, on uh, either uh, grants or friends, schools, and family. Um, you can come up to basically clinical trial stage. But after that, the, the cost goes up so exponential that it's not realistic to ask for anyone to do this by, by themselves. Which is great. And that's, that's useful for me to just understand that definitely. And Final final question, and I promise this is going to be the final question. So, of the of the businesses that you've invested in so far through the fund, how is how's the first you know nine to, or I suppose zero to nine months, whatever it's been, from your perspective? How have you enjoyed being involved in these various businesses, albeit I suspect at a board level? Oh, it's super fun. Uh, working uh, working in in active board work is is super fun and rewarding, and you get to meet all these clever people with you know all these great ideas and you can you can be a part of their journey a little bit on the side but try to help out where you can so it's it's only enjoyable to be on this side well Frederick, this has been fun as i thought it would be thank you for being a guest on molecule to market thank you so much roman anytime anything for you you know it <laughs> yes you're too kind <laughs> And that was my good friend, Frederick Lehman, who is venture partner at Industry Funding in Stockholm. I love his story. He is such an interesting, smart and understated guy. Um, and I think, you know, some of the reflections that I've had on today's conversation that I hope you took uh, from from today was just, I suppose, this his innate resourcefulness the way he talked about, uh, you know, the start of his career when he was in a business that would basically be shutting down, and they managed to find a home for assets and and you know equipment and all that kind of stuff. And in his kind of clearly entrepreneurial nature, managed to create a business from that opportunity, which obviously went on to become a great success. He was very humble about the growth of that business internationally and growing it to fifty staff before selling the business to Resi Farm. And you know, I really particularly enjoyed the story that he told about the shares that he was gifted by his fellow founder, which he gave back just prior to the transition, which just tells you 
a bit about the type of guy that Frederick is. As you know, as the conversation moved on, some of the things that I really enjoyed covering today was just his ability to help companies take ideas and, and make them into something, into product or businesses or a commercially viable uh, kind of entity. And which is no surprise that that's led him to that kind of VC role that he does today, which I, I found particularly fascinating. You know, we hear most interviewees on the podcast talking about the challenges for biotechs in terms of raising funding. So it was, I think, very useful to get a perspective from someone like Frederick, who's very much at the cold face in deciding where to make investments and the nature of their fund, albeit in the Nordic region, is very much in life sciences and focused on the majority of the clients that many of you in the vendor space will end up working to. So whether you're a CRO or CDMO or testing company or, or whatever, the types of businesses he is investing in will become clients of yours. But there was also, towards the end, interesting conversations around in, you know what Frederick was saying is the sentiment from the biotech market and how frustrating it is just sheer, you know, sheer, like completely on the basis of the sheer competition in the industry at the minute and there just not being much money out there and how he finds that, finds that frustrating in terms of not being able to just invest in everything that he sees because he sees so much good stuff uh, coming coming through uh, the the system and and the challenge you mentioned there of you know the better funded companies seem to have a higher chance of succeeding whereas the ones that just can't get funding you know it's a bit of a, a vicious circle really of of not being able to get off that traction and get off uh, the ground so so much good stuff from today that I hope you've taken away from this interview. As always, thanks to my team for pulling the podcast together. I could not do it without you guys. You guys rock. Um, if you like today's episode or the podcast in general, I hope you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening. Please like it or share it or rate it or do whatever you want. And we'll see you again very soon. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify apple or amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website at molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecule to market then please let us know We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.